As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. This is The Athletic Baseball Show on The Athletic Podcast Network. Welcome to the Athletic Baseball Show for Friday, November 11th. Derek Van Riper here with Keith Law. Free agency underway in Major League Baseball. A couple of players have already signed multi-year deals. We're going to talk about those signings. We'll talk about the market as a whole. We'll talk about the qualifying offer and what that means for players who received that and what it might mean for players who did not. But Keith, apparently it is the time of year in which you sign relievers for five years at a time. That is the thing to do early on in free agency. Of course, Edwin Diaz re-upped with the Mets before free agency started. And now Robert Suarez gets a five-year deal to stay in San Diego. Let's start with the Edwin Diaz contract. Five years, $102 million. Keith, it's a very short list of relievers who have received five-year deals upon reaching free agency. I think there are three. And so I have... I mean, I I act like this is some big undertaking. I have a little Excel spreadsheet where I just, every time a reliever gets a four or five year deal, um, I have all of them going back. And this is free agents only. Somebody asked about the Classe deal where he got a five year contract, but he wasn't a free agent. Those are separate because those guys are younger. Um, So this little list I have goes back to 2000. I think there's 20 deals. It's 19 or 20 deals of at least four years. I believe this is the fourth now that went to five years. BJ Ryan, while I was actually with the Blue Jays, uh, and then Kenley Jansen and Aroldis Chapman both got five-year deals in the same offseason, which was six years ago. So it is interesting in that you know, does one guy getting the five-year deal make the second one more in the same offseason more likely? I mean, this has happened twice now. It's not much of a sample, but maybe it's possible. I have, I think the BJ Ryan references is perfect for people who are afraid of contracts like this mm-hmm. skills wise it seems like it's going to be a lot different bj ryan got hurt badly right like that was a big part of why things didn't work out over the life of that deal bj ryan was to me the sort of the perfect example of a guy who signed at his peak right you got you we i was there actually told the story on tv yesterday i could still picture where i was in my house in in Allington, Massachusetts at the time, 
Charlie calls me, and I knew he wanted B.J. Ryan. He was convinced that we needed a closer. Fine. Uh, would you give B.J. Ryan a fifth year? And I said, boss, I wouldn't give him a fourth year because I had done all this work. And I mean, this still informs what I say now. I've just updated with new data, which is that no reliever other than Mariano Rivera really lasts, stays effective and healthy over a four or five year deal. Like they're just, they all taper off or they get hurt. And Ryan is sort of the perfect, as you said, like perfect exemplar of this. One great year. Has Tommy John comes back in year three and is reasonably effective, not a hundred percent, but good. And the fourth year comes back and is he's just done. Fastball's gone. Everything's done. Just over. And I had said to a colleague at the time of the deal, I said, "You know, we'll get two and a half years, good years out of five. Figuring he gets hurt for a year and then you know by the end of the deal he's not that good." And I was optimistic. Turns out I was wrong on the high end. And that that's this is nothing against Diaz specifically. And I try to make this clear in what I wrote about it too. Good for him. This guy's been underpaid basically his entire career. Get that money. Absolutely. Um, and I mean, God, I saw Diaz as an amateur too. Is it just very hard throwing, but very wild. Look, look like somebody who'd never really been taught how to pitch, but was just blessed with a great arm. Uh, I love that, that this is the 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 end, so to speak, of his, you know, not of his career, but like financially, right? He got it. He got to the pot of gold there. But even the best ones don't last. Relievers do not. Be, and I think a lot of this has to do with usage. And a lot of this has to do with the fact that they're just kind of going all out on every single pitch. And we know there's real science, you know, published peer-reviewed research showing basically throwing as hard as you can repeatedly increases your risk of injury. And I think that's, um, it applies to Diaz like it applies to everybody. Him being so incredibly effective does not mitigate the risk of him getting hurt and does not really mitigate the risk of him just tapering off because they all do at some point. Jansen tapered off over that deal. Chapman was basically never the, never the guy the Yankees thought they were getting. He was never terrible, but he d- started declining almost immediately after signing the deal. I don't know that Diaz is going to do that. Like if this were a projection, I haven't looked offhand at the like Zips, Dan Zaborski does his projections. My guess is Diaz will have a great year in year one. It's more, what does the deal look like in total that gets me? And I'd say the same thing about Suarez. I'm going to say the same thing if any other relievers this winter get four or five year deals. I can't imagine who that would be. But I didn't think Suarez would. Because to me, the free agent class, it was Diaz and then nobody. Yeah. For for relievers. Just for relievers. It's definitely a, a thin class or very top-heavy, however you want to describe it. But Edwin Diaz, the five-year projection is in Dan Zimborski's uh, write-up on fan graphs. And I'm looking at it through 2027, of course, is going to be the deal. ERA is under three for every single season. You know, sure. 228 for 2023 kind of incrementally jumps up to 298 over the life of the deal. He's still projected to be a 1.3 war reliever at the end of the deal. So there's yeah. there's a short list of, of skills wise. There's a short list of relievers that you could try this with. I, I think with the appropriate modeling, but that injury risk, as you said, that doesn't change. Right. That's just just not in. It's there, separate right? of the skills. And that's the concern. If he stays healthy. It probably ends up being 
okay over the life of the deal. Yes. Better in the beginning, a little less great at the end. And it's just going to come down to whether or not he misses a lot of time on the IL with some kind of injury. Since you're out in front of you, I assume, what's the total projected war for the five years? Total projected war for the five years. Roughly. It looks like it's, Sorry it's under, just under 10. Tick, just a tick under 10. Okay, so that would make it the second best four or five year deal ever for free agent reliever in the, in this century. I didn't go back prior to 2000. Also, it's just like a different, such a different environment. Yeah, Mariano Rivera had a four-year deal where he had 10 war. He also signed a lot of shorter duration deals anyway, um, because it's not like he was going anywhere. And even he in that deal, there was some up and down, but the total, because he was just, obviously when he was good, he was Hall of Fame good. That's it. Nobody else I think has ever done over seven in a, on a four or five-year deal. Those three five-year deals, Ryan, Jansen, Chapman, none of them got there. I understand war is not the be all and end all. But for back of the envelope, I think it's useful. Nobody's averaged two war over a four or five year deal except for Rivera for relievers. And to me, that just speaks to relievers just don't hold it. They just can't hold this level of performance and stay healthy. The original thing I did for the Blue Jays, because we didn't have any kind of like batted ball or other more granular data. This was mostly just using, you know, pitch FX was just, just starting as I left the Blue Jays. But I just did a bunch of basic searches um, or, or queries on basic performance data. And what was the probability of a reliever, if I remember correctly, and going back obviously 16 plus years now, um, of a reliever who'd had, I think it was, I set the cutoffs at 50 innings and an ERA below three. And I tweaked these. I did it a couple of different ways just to make sure my thresholds weren't creating some kind of, um, you know, strange cutoff in there. It's some, some weird selection bias. And the odds of a guy, if a guy had done it in year one, the odds of a guy doing it in year two were basically 50%. And it didn't matter if he'd done it two years in a row. So if he'd done it in year one and essentially year zero, the odds of him doing it again in year two were still 50%. And it roughly went down, you know, you just cut it in half each year going forward. So seeing that a guy over the course of four years would maintain that level of effectiveness, you were looking at actually quite minuscule odds. It's possible. It's really unlikely. And I'm not rooting for Edwin Diaz to be bad or get hurt or any of those things. I do like the fact that if he gets hurt, he's still going to get paid very handsomely. Good for him. Absolutely. But if I'm the Mets, if I'm Mets ownership, if I'm Mets front office, I'm thinking this deal is going to blow up at some point and you need to be prepared ahead of time for that situation where Diaz is hurt or less, even if he's just less effective, never mind ineffective, because a lot of people say, it's just money. Why do you care? If you read what I wrote, I didn't talk about the money. Um you know, it's the years that are irresponsible here that are just totally profligate to give give that many years to a reliever because then suddenly you've locked up a roster spot and on your depth chart, you've basically said, well, that's our closer. And if Diaz suddenly is like 15% less effective one year and then the next year is you know, 10% less effective, suddenly you reach this inflection point where you probably should be looking for someone else for those high leverage innings, but you've already made this huge investment and locked up a roster spot in one guy. It's a sunk cost. And very, very few people in any walk of life are strong enough to walk away from a sunk cost like that until it's in the, in the trash, right? If Diaz comes out and he has a 6 ERA one year and he's topping out at 88, obviously they'll move on. 
it's when he's just not as good. And But you've made all this. And well, we're not going to go get another closer. We just gave all this money to Edwin Diaz. We can't go do that or call it a closer, call it a highly average reliever, whatever you want. They won't. It's very unlikely that they will. I think there's a, a bigger question with the Mets that we've talked a little bit about at some point over the last two seasons that under Steve Cohen's ownership, the ultimate goal, aside from winning a World Series, is to make the organization function probably more like the Dodgers, where they do everything well. They scout well, they develop well, they find lots of high-quality relievers that don't make $20 million a year and supplement the roster that way. Do you think over the life of this Diaz contract, they can take enough steps forward as an organization where this type of decision, even if it does go wrong because of injuries, performance, or whatever the reason might be, it won't matter. Aside from the fact they're going to run probably the highest or one of the highest payrolls in baseball for the indefinite future. This is not going to sink them. This isn't the Pirates, right? Let's pick on Bob Nutting, because why not? The Pirates do this if they go out and spend $20 million on a high leverage reliever is going to throw 55 to 65 innings a year. And that goes wrong, but screws them up pretty badly. From a payroll perspective, first of all, right? Which is why I didn't talk about the money for the Mets, because this is going to be probably less than 10% of their payroll. And while we might say that it's a little bit inefficient, eh, who cares? It's not even just that it's not my money. It is not, the money really isn't the thing here. And and Diaz was worth $20 million with his performance last year too. It's not like they're giving $20 million to a guy who just wasn't that good. It is much more about how this negatively impacts decision-making, particularly as this deal starts to gradually look worse. I'm not talking about like Edwin Diaz blowing out his shoulder in June and just never being anything again. I'm not predicting that. Nobody could predict that. It's not actually all that likely anymore. It happens to a few guys. We've seen some guys just fail to come back from, you know, get get seriously hurt, fail to come back, take years to come back. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about more the probability that Diaz just isn't as good, isn't as good, misses a little time, a little less effective over gradually. And it affects their decision making around the bullpen, which actually I'm I'm glad we're still on this for a moment because I do want to point out Mike Petriello of MLB great does great great work for them. Um, he responded to me on Twitter in the middle of that site completely imploding uh, with one reasonably good argument for the Mets just saying screw it we're just going all in to keep this guy and that is that the rest of their bullpen is kind of terrible and it's well if we l- lose Diaz we're scrambling for any sort of bullpen. This isn't the year where you could go out and get three other pretty decent relievers in free agency and say, we're going to cobble it together. We'll make a closer because I very much believe closers are made. They're not born. Um, the Mets, you know, the Mariners made Diaz and the Mets traded for him. The Mets could make someone else. The Mets could go get someone else's middle reliever where they like what they see and like pitch data and, and they could make another closer. I believe that. But the Mets had a lot. If Diaz left, the Mets had a lot of stuff lot to fill in the bullpen. That's probably the best argument for the deal. And as I, I said to Mike on Twitter, you know what? The, both of those things can be true at the same time. That retaining Diaz was fairly critical because of the, what the rest of the Mets bullpen uh, depth chart looked like for next year. And five years is still wildly optimistic for any reliever, no matter how effective. 
Robert Suarez gets the five-year deal as well. Five years, $46 million, so quite a bit less than the $102 million going to Edwin Diaz. More or less surprising to you to see the five years for Suarez versus Diaz? More surprising because he's going to be mm-hmm. 32 in March. And wasn't that good last year? Uh, he walked almost four per nine. We get very good high leverage relievers with high walk rates, though. That is a common skills sure. flaw in that player group. And I think you sure. can look past it a little easier with a reliever than you can with starters, right? I mean, I think with someone like Blake Snell on the same team, for example, that higher walk rate bites you a little more than that elevated walk rate does for a short reliever. But five years for a 30, a now 31, soon to be 32-year-old reliever, that was surprising. And there's some opt-outs in this deal, uh, one after 2025, I believe. Yeah, I'm going to assume you don't, believe in this contract for this particular player, at least in terms of length. And maybe you have some questions about the skills, too. I mean, how much of the effectiveness from Suarez? We saw him a lot in the postseason. Stuff Mm -hmm. is good. How much of it, though, was teams just not seeing him a lot because he was in Japan for so long? I have no idea. I think he's good. I don't think he's elite. Now, they didn't pay him elite money. Right, The AAV here is less than half of Diaz's, so it's not that. But the th- what I really can't get over here, you can argue for, right, you had a five-year projection for Diaz, and we have a lot of data, right? What do we have, six-plus years of major league performance and really good granular data for his entire career? His, his whole major league career has happened in the StatCast era. What the heck do we have on Suarez? <laughs> right? We have one year, 60-ish innings. I mean, that is just a, that's a small sample period. If a rookie came up at 23 and threw just 60 innings, um, I guess giving him a five-year deal would be different because he's arbitration, it's less money, et cetera, et cetera. But setting that aside, say that we had some weird circumstance where a 24-year-old rookie comes up, throws one inning of effective major league, sorry, one season of effective major league relief, 60-odd innings, and then through some contractual quirk, whatever, he's immediately a free agent. Even with the age in his favor, the heck are you projecting on that guy? We know what his next five years are going to look like. How do you know that wasn't a stone fluke? Even if you believe in the stuff, even if you think the underlying pitch data is good, it's 60 innings. It's not that much of a sample size. And that's what's so shocking to me with the Suarez deal is that this is a response to a good, not elite year for a guy who's already in his 30s where we just don't have very much data. We have good Stackhouse level data on him, but the performance is not overwhelming. So, do they believe that Suarez is going to be much better going forward? I would be very curious to hear the argument for that. When, like you said, he wasn't even here, wasn't even pitching in the United States before this year. We've got a tiny sample to go off of, and these, you know, this deal covers him through age thirty six. Yeah, the age thirty six season. Yeah, what? Right? Who is that confident in their projections for relievers to go not just three to five years in the future, but at those ages? I, I'm not. Again, I don't think this is going to sink the Padres. It's not that much money for them. And in this case, the only reason I would say this might be preferable to the Diaz deal, and it's not overall, but the only thing that Suarez wasn't even on my top 50 free agents, Diaz was. He was the highest ranked reliever by a lot, is that. Suarez, Suarez's money is probably enough that they're not just going to cut him at some point, but I don't think this makes him, hey, this guy's our capital C closer and we're never changing because we've given him this contract. 
it's easier to walk away or manipulate your roster around this guy at this dollar figure than it is Diaz at 20 million. And I'm sort of trying to play a little bit of armchair psychologist here, which is not a great role for me, but just thinking how do people respond to things like sunk costs and Diaz making more than twice as much could adversely affect the Mets thinking about the rest of their bullpen more than Suarez at that dollar figure, nine, right? AAV will affect the Padres thinking. If the Padres are like, hey, he's not that good anymore. Fine. All right. He becomes our fourth right-hander out of the bullpen. Let's go get someone else or create someone else. You mentioned in your article, it is a thin free agent class for relievers. So who yeah. do you like in this group? A lot of names that have been coveted in the past that have clearly lost some stuff. Aroldis Chapman, Kenley Jansen, Craig Kimbrell, Will Smith is out there again, Zach Britton, to name a few, Taylor Rogers. So there are names people are familiar with, guys who have been closers before, guys who have been very effective closers before. But this is a group of players, of course, on the wrong side of 30, because that's what most free agent relievers are. Who do you like out of this group? And, and obviously, you can go beyond the names that I threw out there. Yeah, there's um, Shintaro Fujinami might be coming over from NPB. I don't think he's actually been posted yet. Uh, he has been, uh, he's worked in both roles as starter and reliever in NPB. Everyone I spoke to who saw him thought, He's definitely a reliever if he comes over here. He's got arguably two plus pitches with below average command and control. Uh, so nobody really thinks he can start, but he could come over here and be reasonably effective in a relief role. I, I'm just a big fan of the splitter in general. Almost every pitcher I have ever seen live or on video from, well, honestly, this would apply to all of the major Asian professional baseball leagues, MPB, KBO, and Taiwan, CPBL. They all throw splitters. Like they are, I believe they just they just teach splitters far more often to young pitchers over there than we do, where there's still this pervasive belief that I think honestly dates back to the 80s, late 80s, early 90s, that splitters get you hurt. I don't think there's actual evidence to support that. And I think if you want evidence on the other side, you can point to how many guys throw them over in those Asian professional leagues where it's not like they have far higher rates of injury. Um, and I think that can make that particular pitch more effective because we don't see as much. We see some splitters or the guys on my free agent list. Taiwan Walker throws some sort of splitter. Um, I think Fujinami could come over and have maybe two, three years of, of low level success as a reliever boosted by the fact that he's throwing a pitch that's just somewhat less common over here. And he can, he might be up to a hundred out of relief out of in a relief role, certainly in the upper nineties. He'd be a guy you mentioned Jansen Rogers. Sure. I'd take a shot at those guys. I just don't expect them to be, elite. Jansen isn't the guy he once was. Um, and then there's guys, there's also uh, starters who could be converted to relievers, right? I would love to see, you know, Sean Manaya is just not the same guy anymore. He's obviously had a lot of injury trouble. It's really unfortunate. Maybe stick him in a bullpen role and see what it looks like. Um, Rafael Montero was 40th on my list. I'm actually looking to make sure I think he was the second highest reliever on the list. Like he might get three years from somebody. Um, Oh, Drew Rosinski, who is coming over, probably, he's a free agent in KBO. He never got um, out of, like, he had a tiny cups of coffee. He never got out of, like, the last right-hander in the bullpen rolls for the Angels, Twins, Marlins. Went over to Korea and has completely changed him. So he's a different pitcher now. He Somebody might make him a starter. 
and probably it'll be whichever team, assuming he does come over and get some offers, I could see you know whichever team offers him the most is going to be probably the one that thinks he can start. But at worst, he could pitch in a major league bullpen and be a lot more effective than he was last time around. But also, you know, if you listen to everything I just rattled off, right, does that sound like a great free agent reliever class? Two guys coming over from NPB and KBO, one guy who's just a straight reliever here, and then, oh, this guy used to be good, or maybe the starter will go to the bullpen and he'll be more effective. You know, maybe Manaya has a second act as a reliever. It's not a good free agent relief class. And I think that's kind of what Petriello was also getting at was, you know, the rest of the Mets bullpen is not good. And what else is there in free agency? They would be scrambling a bit to try to fill, backfill the innings that would have been vacated if Diaz had gone elsewhere. Yeah, I, I think when you consider the quality of the position players that are available too, if you're a team that has both needs in the bullpen and somewhere around the diamond, you're more likely to spend the extra bucks getting the position player upgrade. It's going to be a Wouldn't more you? impactful upgrade. I, I would, yeah. For sure. I'll try to find a reliever maybe that's coming off an injury or coming off a down year and try to get a bargain in that spot. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Qualifying offers went out on Thursday. Mm-hmm. This is a, a system that I don't particularly care for. I would rather not have a qualifying offer oh, system than I have was one. really hoping they'd get rid of it in the CBA, but not not this one. Maybe the next one. Something to look forward to in the next CBA, Keith. Well, there's the whole there's this idea that the union and the union had proposed some some of the union's proposals would have gotten rid of this. So I'm not blaming the union, but there is this idea that the union if the union gets rid of the QO system, they're essentially out of the draft. It is the thing that puts the draft under the purview of the CBA. This is my understanding from talking to people involved on both sides. Uh, and so for the union to give it up, it's not so much that they, of, of course, they want to get rid of the qualifying offers, but they understand it is giving up a lot of leverage in negotiations if they were to get rid of the QO. So they want some major concession in return. And I think that's kind of the big reason we haven't gotten there yet the system for anybody who's unfamiliar with it if a player receives a qualifying offer and then signs as a free agent with a different club there's draft pick compensation that goes to the former team and that compensation varies based on a number of other factors that we don't have to dive into here if you took calc bc in high school you can figure it out yeah we'll go run through the players that received the qualifying offer not a ton of surprises on this list dansby swanson players like this the high-end free agents always get one that's just how it works so as long as so long mm-hmm. as they're eligible to receive one they receive one Dansby Swanson, Wilson Contreras, Tyler Anderson, that's a name we're going to come back to, Trey Turner, Jock Peterson, also a surprise, Carlos Rodon, Chris Bassett, Jacob deGrom, Brandon Nimmo, Martin Perez, Xander Bogarts, Nathan Evaldi, Aaron Judge, and Anthony Rizzo. Of those names, 
there were probably three that when I saw them on the list, I thought, hmm, interesting. Uh, Perez was definitely one of them. <laughs> Jock Peterson was definitely one of them. And Tyler Anderson is one. And I think of the three, Anderson's probably the least surprising. I'm okay with that. I, that one, I was like, sure. He's actually probably worth that dollar figure. And if he's not, we're quibbling over a pretty small amount of money. And the starting pitching class is not great in free agency. So that one, I I was also mildly surprised. But then I thought about it. Nah, that's good. It makes sense to me. Because if a player accepts the offer, it's a one-year $19.65 million deal for the upcoming season. When I was with the Jays, we always used to say, you know, there's really no such thing as a bad one-year deal. Right? It's, true. it's over almost immediately. It doesn't ha- it doesn't hamper your decision making going forward. Um, those you know one, guys on one year contracts are often you know as long as they're not hurt or just atrocious, they're often quite tradable. So there are lots of arguments in favor of hey, if he takes it, fine. It's not the worst thing in the world. Among the uh, twists and turns too, as far as how the compensation works, if the player receives a contract that's worth more than fifty million dollars, the compensation is different. And Tyler Anderson's right on that threshold because Isn't it'd probably be a three-year, $50 million deal or something in that neighborhood if he gets mm-hmm. a multiple-year deal to go somewhere else. So the possible compensation payoff for the Dodgers is also high, aside from looking at this guy and saying that was 178 and two-thirds innings that were really valuable for us. He was very, very effective. We can take mm-hmm. a chance on that for another year if it also gives us the possibility of getting this extra draft compensation if he leaves. I guess the question I have for you with Anderson is if you were a team desperate for pitching and there's plenty of them, are you willing to go to that third year in that $50 million range? Do you believe enough in him for these next few seasons to go do that? If you're a team like the angels or any other teams that are desperate for pitching, I went back to see what I wrote to try to avoid contradicting myself. And I said, I'd give him three years and 35 to $40 million, even with just the one year of performance at this level, because he changed his changeup with a different grip, and this is the kind of adjustment that finesse command guys. I mean, I hate you know the crafty lefty, right? That's a stereotype, but also there have been th- that is also uh, a formula that can work, and guys like that can be effective into their late thirties, even into their forties. Like I think this works. I think what Anderson is doing. I'm not sure how long it lasts, but I would I would be fine investing three years to say I think there's a chance we've got a decent you know, league averageish starter here. Um, I wouldn't put him back in Colorado necessarily, but there are most places I think would be fine for him. Maybe he should be more in that forty five to fifty million dollar range. I wonder if the QO being attached to him pushes him back down a little bit. That teams say, oh well, we're going to offer a little less money now because that draft pick. Is attached, and it does. People, t- not every team, but many teams, value those draft picks quite highly. God, if I'm a Mets fan right now, considering how incredibly well that group has drafted over the last five to God ten years, really going all the way back to the Nimmo draft, they've continued to draft extremely well and created a lot of prospect value for trades, not just for their own team, but for uh, a lot of top prospects that they drafted have been traded fairly quickly to bolster the major league club. They could end up with three after extra draft picks. I'm sure Mets fans would rather see DeGrom come back, but Bassett, DeGrom, Nemo, all getting QOs. They should get at least one, maybe two extra draft picks out of the deal. Um, and because, go tying this back to Anderson too, the QO being attached does create a little bit of a drag on 
prices for free agents. And it's actually then it becomes a bit more attractive for the player maybe to go back to his old club because they might be willing to offer a little bit more money because they're not paying in terms of a draft pick. Looking at Anderson, I think I compare him a lot to Martin Perez because similar age lefties, some questions about past performance relative to what just happened in 2022. Perez is basically that he's had a home run problem going back to 2017 and 2022. He didn't give up nearly as many home runs. He cut his home run rate from 1.5 homers per nine in Boston in 2021 to 0.5 homers per nine. Everything else skills-wise looks pretty similar. He did nudge the K rate up just a little bit. Walk rate in line with career norms. Swinging strike rate in line with career norms. I think he might be a great candidate to actually accept the qualifying offer of these players. And I don't think I would be willing to go out and give him a multi-year deal. I think I still have more questions than confidence. It depends on how much you buy into the cutter. I mean, his story is a little different. Right? We, we, I think we're more comfortable with and familiar with pitcher adds a new pitch and within 18 months is just much better, much different than the one he was before. That would be true of Anderson. In Perez's case, the cutter that became kind of his primary pitch this year and helped him generate a lot of weak contact and a lot of ground balls. Uh, he first added that pitch when he was with the Twins three, four seasons ago, prior to the pandemic. And it just got a little better, a little better, a little better. And this year he went very heavy on the cutter, almost completely ditched the four-seamer, which is probably good because that pitch was below average. Even when he was throwing it harder, it was kind of straight, giving up harder contact. And you think he's a guy who, when we all, myself included, had him ranked as such a great prospect, maybe if we'd had better pitch quality data, we would have ranked him lower because we would have said, hey, that fastball is actually not as good as it appears to be. Um, that's you know, his story is unusual and unusual stories do give us pause, right? We love being able to say there's precedent for this. There's, there are lots of historical comparisons and I agree with you. I think Perez, I mean, there's certainly, you know, some of the, like his strand rate was exceptionally high last year. I don't think I, I even wrote, I'm going to quote myself His batted ball data and peripherals don't point to a sub three ERA. But I think he could be a league average starter. He could be a ground ball generating guy who gives you, you know, we pitched almost 200 innings this year. Could he be that for a couple couple of years? Would I give him two to three years? Yeah, I think I would. I also think there's, you have to stomach some risk with basically all the free agent starters. There's no free agent starter in this class who's pristine, right? They're all either old or newly effective or have lots of injuries on their resumes, you're just kind of holding your nose a little bit and saying, I'm, they're all going to get many, many of them are going to get three-year deals. Some might even get longer. I think that's a little bit of the price of playing ball, so to speak on these guys. And even Perez, I understand your hesitation completely. And if you see other reasons that I didn't even cover there, please throw them in. But yeah, I would do three years and just say, yeah, this could go wrong, but all these guys, all these guys you mentioned, Taiwan Walker, Jameson Tyon, they're all getting three years, maybe more. Chris Bassett's definitely a part of this group. And I think yes. we might be on opposite ends in terms of where Bassett kind of fits into this group. I think you might be a little lower on him than I am. And, and you like him more? I like him yeah. a little more. He's older. Sure. He's 33. It, it is hard, given how much time he spent in Oakland, 
to mm-hmm. you take the performance there and say, okay, this this is this is totally stable. You put him in a more hitter friendly environment. What's going to happen? Because of course, City Field is also a pitcher friendly ballpark. So you yeah. have that kind of working against you as well. If you are a team that plays in a neutral park or even a hitter friendly park, you're probably not getting the same Chris Bassett results wise that we have seen over the better part of now five years, probably going back to 2018. Mm-hmm. What gives you pause? I mean, it's not, it can't just be age, right? There's got to be something else in that profile that gives you a little bit of a, a hesitation as far as committing to him on a, on a similar deal to the other pitchers. The number one thing that has me rank Bassett a little bit lower than some of these other guys we discussed is he doesn't really have an out pitch. There's not a clear plus pitch anywhere, big swing and miss offering. He's a huge ground ball guy. And that's fine. I mean, so is Perez too. But I think Perez's changeup is a little bit more of a swing and miss offering for him. And Bassett doesn't have the kind of elite command and control that I think he needs to be really effective with this kind of stuff. When he gets too much of the zone, he gets hit fairly hard. His success last year has been, you know, limits hard contact, throws a lot of strikes, limits hard contact, and stays out of the sort of fat part of the zone, right? The middle, middle, and around it, where he might get hit a little bit harder. Um, And he's also like, last year was the first time he ever made 30 starts. I know he's had some fluke, non-repeating injuries, but I don't know that he has as strong an argument for maybe durability for saying, okay, we give this guy a three-year deal. Do we get 500 innings over the course of that deal? You might. I'm not saying you can't. I'm just saying he lacks the history of some of these other guys. They're all kind of small things. They added up a bit for me. And I will also concede, too, if you look at some of the guys I ranked higher, there's certain guys I'm saying, I think there's a little more upside. I think Jamison Tyon gets another year removed from what was his second Tommy John surgery. And I think there's a little bit more improvement coming. I think there are still things he can do given what his arsenal is like, his age, again, getting a little further removed from the surgery, and he might take another step forward. I could be wrong. Like I think I historically, if you look at my free agent rankings, I probably only have about a 50% hit rate on those guys where I'm saying, I think there's a little more upside here. But I would rather rank those guys a little bit higher to highlight the potential upside over the guys who are maybe a little more predictable, but more boring. But less interesting, less possibility of something more. And then it is more like, do you like, you know, what's your favorite flavor, right? Do you like chocolate? Do you like vanilla? I I like all ice cream. So it's probably a poor choice, except rum raisins. Disgusting. Nobody likes those things. But (laughs) do you want predictability? Do you place more value on what you view as greater predictability? Or do you place more value on we might get more? We're taking a shot here at a much higher ROI, but also accepting more risk. I am probably a little less risk averse when it comes to a lot of these starting pitchers because I just think that is kind of the price of entering the starting pitching free agent market. And I do think they offer some more predictability just as a whole class than relievers do. Yeah, I think it depends a lot on the amount of depth you have too. If you have good point passable starting pitching depth, you can afford to take a chance on a more injury prone starter. You can take a chance on Tyone. You can take a chance on Nathan Evaldi. And here's a question I know the answer to. How old is Nathan Evaldi? <laughs> Wait, I don't have it open right now. Yeah, how old do you think he is? It was the first number that pops into your head. 32. Okay, he is 32. Ah, that was a stone guess, I swear. For some reason, I had him a little closer to Charlie Morton's age. Not 
at the same age as Charlie Morton, but in my mind, Nathan Evaldi well, he's like was like 36, right? At least he might even be 37 or 38 now. I had I had Evaldi on on track to be a 35 year old next season. He's been around forever. He's had some major injuries. He's come back from those. Oh, I don't have. I'm on my other computer. I should see what year I had. Evaldi was on my top 100 once as a Dodgers prospect. It's a long freaking time ago. Mm, 2011. But I'm wondering how many years it is from. By the way, were you shocked he got a QO? I'm not shocked because they have depth problems with starting pitching. Okay, that's, yeah. Well, that's basically the Petriello argument. Hi, Mike. We're talking about you. Your ears are probably burning. Right, but that's the argument, right? Mm -hmm. Oh, God, we got to keep somebody, right? And it's the devil you know on a one-year deal. How many opportunities do you have to get a starter? And Avaldi was outstanding in 21 and not good in 22. So that I guess that's the argument, right? It's a one-year deal. For a guy who was really good for us not that long ago, and if it, if he's bad again, so what? It's not that big. It's not a big investment. It's not a lot of money. Right, and you're projecting him for probably 140 innings, like maybe yeah. maybe a little more, but not much more than that. But it works yeah. if you do it right. They brought back James Paxton. At least Paxton exercised his player option at four million, so he's still working back from. I believe it was. Oh, I 100 bring him back, right? Yeah, because it four, four, four million dollar yeah. figure. Makes 10 starts, right? Those 50 innings. Another guy you might say, hey, can we make you a some kind of modified reliever swing man? Always a possibility that if it, yeah, he doesn't come all the way back as a starter, he ends up in the pen and is really good out of the bullpen. Again, nothing, not, not, I feel like I'm qualifying this consciously. Like I'm not rooting against these players, but just looking at Paxton's injury history too, and you know, missing the whole season, et cetera, et cetera. Could he come back and just say, we're, we're going to take it easy with you. And it's the start. It's going to be, you know, two innings twice a week and we'll build you up. And if we, hey, if it works out and you can start by the end of the year, great. But you just go very slow with him with an idea. You know, if he's ready to pitch in some role on opening day, you know, you work this out with the with the player and with your training staff too and say, what's the best way to give this guy a chance to be healthy for the whole season? I think with the expanded rosters too, it's much easier now to plan for relievers who don't pitch every day. I remember 20 years ago, um, when I was at the Jays, we had Dewan Day, who did end up getting a cup of coffee with the White Sox, and he was in like low A, maybe even short season for us. And I asked our player development guy, I said, why don't we move this guy up? He's really effective. He was old. He was a college draft. He was like a senior sign for us, I think, out of Southern. And the response was, he can't pitch every day. He can't, and I mean, back to back days, not every day, like 180 days, but you know, he couldn't pitch back to back days. And that was just, un, that was just fatal, right? You could not be a prospect as a reliever, if there is such a thing, if you couldn't pitch on back to back days. Now, I think we have larger rosters and we've just gotten out of that mindset too. Maybe it's better for you to throw two innings today and then not pitch again for three days. I'm much better with that. I think it's a better chance to keep guys healthy and might make them more effective. So, you know, that's to me, that opens up possibilities for guys like Paxton. Huge injury history, great stuff, a lot of upside. $4 million? Absolutely. You find Red Sox probably find that in the couches in the front office. Most likely. Yeah. If they yeah. haven't shaken the couches recently, yes, they will. They will definitely that's find true. that. 
Are you struggling to close deals? B2B selling is tougher than ever, and that's why I want to tell you about LinkedIn Sales Navigator. One more great product from LinkedIn. You're there to network, you're there to look for jobs, you're there to post jobs, and how about LinkedIn Sales Navigator? It's a sales intelligence platform that helps professionals effectively prospect and engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator helps you target the right buyers, surface key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize and shows you hidden allies so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash baseball show. That is linkedin.com slash baseball show for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash baseball show and get started. When you get injured, you don't want to wait for answers and options. That's why it may be time to explore the Nano Experience a revolutionary treatment option designed to help active people get back to the lifestyles they love. Nanotechnology allows surgeons to see inside even the smallest joints and treat orthopedic conditions with a tiny camera and other nano instrumentation, all through a barely-there poke-hole incision. Wherever you've experienced an injury, whether it be foot and ankle, hand and wrist, shoulder and elbow, knee or hip, nanoarthroscopy can be used to diagnose and treat your condition in an extremely, minimally invasive way. Don't wait to learn about the revolutionary nano experience and how it could help you or someone you know after an injury. Visit arthrex.info slash the athletic. This is not medical advice and is not meant to be a substitute for advice from your physician. Talk with your physician about your health condition, potential surgical risks, and whether Arthrex products are right for you. Postoperative management is patient-specific and dependent upon your physician's assessment. Individual results will vary. Players who did not receive a qualifying offer, the notable ones. We mentioned Kershaw earlier. I mean, they weren't going to give him a qualifying offer. They didn't do it last year, and they already re-signed him. So that was kind of its own thing. Yeah, it doesn't count. And like Correa was not eligible, just right. for people who are wondering. A whole bunch of players that weren't eligible that are free agents that couldn't receive one. Taiwan Walker might be the most surprising to me because I actually mm-hmm. believe in what he was doing this season. I think with the Mets, of course, you know, needing to make sure they've got the innings. That would have made some sense as well. And I don't know. I mean, I'm looking at him now at back-to-back seasons where he's gone over 150 innings, had some major injuries, of course, that cost him a lot of time in 18 and 19. But this looks like a profile that you can at least bank on for kind of mid-rotation, number three, number four starter type production at this point. Yes, I was surprised too. And I wonder, was also any of that also, right? They made three did they say, all right, there's a limit to how many we do want to offer? I don't know. I, I have no idea. Was that part of their thinking? I mean, to me, it would be like if I were in a front office, I'm like, QO's for everybody, right? <laughs> what's, what's the worst that happens? We get everybody back on a one-year deal and or extra draft picks. I want all of these things. <laughs> and, you know, Billy Upler, GM of the Mets now, he he knows the value of draft picks. He was, God, he was GM of the Angels where they were he he probably was the in the sort of worst position to take over there because after the previous regime had just devastated the farm system, it was wait we we need prospects of any sort any way we can get them. So I don't think Epler's throwing away draft picks here either. I, I wonder, you know, did they have some any information, you know, 
whether it's, you know, they saw something in some of the, you know, the more granular, you know, batted ball or similar pitch type information that made them more wary of just a long term or of a high dollar figure investment for one more year? Or was it a health issue? I don't know. Um, you would think in their situation, they would say, we'll take you all back. But maybe it was also, well, we're offering one to Bassett. Let's not offer one to Walker because what if they both accept? It's not my thinking, but that may very well have been. It could be as simple as that, why they didn't offer for him. And I think it helps Walker a lot. Walker becomes a bit more appealing as a free agent now because he doesn't have that attached to him. Yeah, compared to all the other names we talked about who did receive that, if they're all going to be somewhat similar in terms of number of years and, and total compensation, now you're not worried about giving up that extra draft pick if you go over that $50 million threshold over the life of the contract for Taiwan Walker. Let's get to some of the position players. I mean, we've talked a lot about the shortstop class, and I still think Dansby Swanson is the most challenging of these players to evaluate. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's particularly difficult to say, let's give a lot of money to Carlos Correa. Let's give a lot of money to Trey Turner. I I think with those players, they're going to be good for a long time. I think with Turner, even if you have to move him to center field as he ages, okay, you can live with that over the life of a long-term deal. He's shown he can play second base at a high level. Right. I'm not obviously at him second. I'm not worried. Yeah, you could just play him at second. I mean, there's plenty of places you're gonna be able to play him over the the long term deal. The the Dansby Swanson thing is extra strange because he reached this new level as an offensive player, and there's also in the face of winning a gold glove, there are some questions about his arm strength. Look at his stat cast arm strength. It, it's like, okay, well, maybe he's not a shortstop at the end of a six or seven or eight year deal. Who cares, right? He's going to be a shortstop at the beginning of the deal. I guess I just want to ask, how much do you trust what we saw from him as a hitter in 2022? Are you willing to look at that version of Dansby Swanson or even just the best versions we've seen of him as a player and project off of all the good things without taking some of the underlying concerns, most specifically a fairly high strikeout rate? You go back to 2020, right? He's been above 25% now over the last three seasons. I am expecting some regression on the offensive side and am very much in on the defensive side. Like, I think he's going to stay at shortstop for a long time. Um, I think the defensive improvements we saw from him, even just in the last year, are real and sustainable. And even with some probable backsliding on the offensive side, uh, you know, whether you're, I had Swanson third, And I will say that there were two things on my top 50 that I heard some feedback after posting it from people in the industry. They thought Swanson should have been a bit lower below Judge and, you know, which age was a huge factor there and possibly below Bogarts. And Bogarts, I feel better about the offense going forward and worse about the defense. Um, And Jerickson Profar was just too high. I mean, that's one. If I could go back and take it back, edit it, I would bump Profar down a bit. Um, I think I overrated Profar's youth there, and my belief that he can't possibly be this bad a defensive player maybe is a little unfounded. <laughs> um, but in Swanson's case, you know, I did speak to people who'd seen him, people who'd worked with him a little bit, and I think that's real, that he's going to stay at shortstop and be a valuable defensive shortstop for a long time. And I think there's, there is huge value in that, in the ability to play such a critical position where there's chronic scarcity of guys who can really play it and provide anything with the stick, right? You can always go find a guy who can just play shortstop and can't hit. And you can go find guys who can hit and be 45 defenders at short. But somebody who offers a little of both, I think there's almost like a synergy there where there's more, they are more valuable as a result. Now, if you want to argue Swanson should be fifth instead of third, sure. I am not going to die on that particular hill. 
if you think it should be. I'm not, I, I will fight you on Correa one, and I think Turner two is pretty easy. And then you can take Judge Bogarts and Swanson and put them in any order three, four, five. We're good. That's fine. You want to put Judge third, Bogarts fourth, and Swanson fifth? Sure. Sounds great to me. Like those three guys you could shuffle in just about any order. But the reason I had them where I did was age was one part and Swanson's probability of staying at shortstop and remaining an above average even plus defender at short for several more years um, and staying at short for the majority of the years on a long-term deal. That's why I had him where I had him. Do you think he stays in Atlanta or do you think he ends up going somewhere else in this big shortstop shuffle? It's really interesting because he's, I mean, got Atlanta just right. They locked up Strider and they locked up Harris. And I swear while we were on this podcast, Alex Anthopoulos has locked up three more guys to long-term deals. Just the fact that they never did that with Swanson, is that a team side thing? Is that a player side thing? Maybe a little of both. They do have alternatives. They would also be losing a lot. I mean, I know Von Grissom was great in his cup of coffee this year. I do not. I would not bet on him stepping in as the full-time replacement at shortstop next year and giving you even half the production you got from Swanson last year. On the other side, Swanson's a local kid. Right, I imagine there's some small pull, at least for him to stay there, whether that's an actual discount or just more of a willingness to sign with them. I don't know. Um, yeah, I am all for players. You, you get to free agency. You might only get one bite at that apple. Go get every last dime you can. I'm good with that. I also recognize like, if that's where you're from and where your family is and where you want to settle, that's not nothing. Right, I, I completely understand that. As somebody who left where I grew up and never at 17 and basically never looked back, I am also still empathetic to people who who feel that pull of the hometown. I think the challenge if you are Atlanta and you don't re-sign Dansby Swanson, you're Mm -hmm. probably going to have to commit to one of the other big free agents because there aren't that many stop gaps out there. No. No, that's a real gap in the market. Or if you were to go down the Grissom path, you make him the shortstop, you go get the big upgrade in left field. Because you, you've got glaring need within the offense that needs to be addressed somewhere. So mm-hmm. I think they're going to be players for an impact bat, even if it's not you know, retaining Swanson. Aaron Judge? Replacing him. That would be stunning, right? No, one, no one's put them together. Oh my God, that would be amazing. Didn't even consider that a real possibility until just now. Oh, I just, I just right? What, it, what have I done? <laughs> I will say this too, you know, obviously everybody's super excited over Michael Harris and he's played, he really he turned out to be you know, potentially an elite defensive player in center field. Either his patience and play discipline have to improve or he's going to slide, right? And this is more short-term than long-term. Michael Harris is going to be a very good player for a long time. I'm not questioning that. I'm thinking specifically of 2023, right? This guy... I mean, he walked, it's less than 5% of his plate appearances last year. You don't see a lot of position players, a lot of hitters remain productive with walk rates that low. Either that goes up or some of the other stuff is going to come back down temporarily and he'll have to make some improvements. And having some history with Harris, I think it's going to get worse before it gets better. I think in the long term, it gets better. I I always liked him as a prospect and he made adjustments too. I'm a very big fan of players. When I saw him in June of 2021, he couldn't hit a breaking pitch or really off-speed stuff. Huge struggles. In the second half of last year, he improved. Then he comes up to the majors and obviously did make some adjustments. He was not flailing hopelessly at any non-fastballs last year. But the ball strike stuff, definitely still a problem for him. 
he'll make those adjustments. I have very little doubt that he will make those adjustments, but I wouldn't bet on it being immediate. And if you're Atlanta, if you're Anthopolis, you are thinking, hey, we might lose some offense here and there. Like, what if Harris produces less? Let's go out and plan around that. And if Swanson leaves, that's another spot where you're probably taking an offensive hit. And all the more argument than to go get, say, a corner bat somewhere who's just got some more thump to try to make up for what you might lose from regression from a couple of other players. Yeah, I do think having a healthy Ozzy Albies helps uh, offset yeah, some of that too. I mean, they got so much from Grissom as one of the replacements and Harris in center field. Yep. Albies comes back. He's probably at least a, a three-win player again. So that certainly uh, helps mm-hmm. them quite a bit. I do think with Harris, I see a lot of statistical similarities in how much he swings the pitches outside the zone, the low walk rate. I see those things, and they're very similar to Bo Bichette in terms mm-hmm. of the approach and how well it's worked. I guess the question would be, do you see Harris as having a similarly high-quality hit tool to Bichette? Do you think that's something where he can be effective swinging at pitches outside the zone? Because I think in order to do that, you have to have great bat-to-ball ability. You have to have... Yes. It, it, to get through, even if it's not poor strike zone judgment, if, if it's an aggressive approach, you have to have a lot of plate coverage. You have to have the ability to get to pitches that other players can't get to. Does Michael Harris have that? It's a good question. I have more history with Bichette, too. And so... And Bichette, I, I always, I thought was exceptional. Like, I, I hate the way Bichette goes about it, but it works. He could always get the bat to the ball. I mean, I saw him a bunch of times as an amateur, and he was one of those guys where it's just, you know what? You just sort of ignore the me- – I was willing to ignore the mechanics to say, I think he can just hit. One thing I never thought he could do was play shortstop, and he, he probably needs to be moved off shortstop. But he's also stayed there longer than I thought he would. Harris is probably pretty close, though. I mean, he's certainly hyper-athletic, and he has bat speed. He has wrist speed, and he has shown the ability to get the bat to the ball so far in a season-ish of Major League data. It is more, can he continue to do that and make good enough contact to keep the batting average up and maintain that kind of power, especially as pitchers continue to see that he's not that disciplined and that's sort of what I'm expecting, right? It, 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 we, I sometimes speak of adjustments as if they are binary things, but it could be much more that, hey, he starts out next year and pitchers are working him, you know, sort of middle out, you know, get a strike early and then just work out of the zone because you know he'll expand and sometimes chase. And maybe he puts the bat on the ball, but it's lower quality contact. And then at some point he'll make that adjustment back and you'll see some of the back and forth. And I think we've seen that a bit with Bichette as well. Um, that can happen to these bad ball hitters. I am not bearish on Harris long term, just in case anyone's listening and thinks that's what it is. Harris was 21 last year. I was shocked he was even in the majors as quickly as he was, and then he was really good right out of the shoot. Like Harris is going to have a very, very good career and make a bunch of all-star teams. He might win Rookie of the Year. Um, I He was on my ballot. I can't say where, but he was one of the three names on my NL Rookie of the Year ballot this year. So I believe in Harris long term. I would not be surprised if he was less productive at the plate in 23 than he was in 22. and um, But I still think he can improve over the long term. And I also you know, remain a Bichette fan. I just Bichette is one of the best high school players I've ever seen in terms of just being able to get to the bat to the ball, even if it's out of the zone, and despite a pretty bad 
you know, mechanically, he does all these things you would never want a hitter to do. Harris is not that noisy. I, I just have a little bit less of the history, and it probably gives me a lower confidence level in making any kind of projection for him. And how much of Bichette's unusual swing mechanics are, you know, the result of him being a tennis player when he was younger? <laughs> and how many, how many amateur players have you scouted who played competitive tennis like that? There's things he does with his hands. Mm-hmm. I played tennis in high school. And I could see it. That's probably how. If, That's funny. If I played baseball at a high level, I'd probably try and do what he does and I wouldn't be good at it. But yeah. that's what my hands naturally want to do if I play softball, right? So it's interesting that he's got this unorthodox approach, but you can kind of understand where it came from. And I think knowing more about the story makes me more comfortable believing in how he does it and it being a little more sustainable than, I don't know, let's go back to Hunter Pence as someone that had really unusual mechanics you know, a while back. Like I, I don't know if Hunter Pence played tennis or some other sport that that made that hand-eye work really well with that unusual swing. But mm-hmm. with Bo, like, I can just believe it because I understand that sport and I understand the mechanics of what's going on. That's a good question. I, I can't think of another tennis-playing position player because aren't they usually both spring sports? Yeah, yeah, they overlap. It's so hard really, to play both. You can't do both. It'd be kids. I mean, there are a lot of kids that grow up in warm weather places where you could play both throughout the year. But it's... A, it, Tennis is just specialized sport, too. I feel like the, the mm-hmm. best young tennis players only play tennis. They don't play baseball. They don't play basketball. Oh, yeah, yeah, they don't yeah. play football. They don't play soccer. They just get locked in on tennis. So it's so unusual. But I think that's part, just the part of how it actually works for him. It's a great question. I don't know the answer, honestly, because he's the only one I can think of. I will say his brother, Dante Jr., also had terrible swing mechanics, but they were different. Dante Jr. was a huge backside collapse, swing out of your ass and straight uphill and just try to pull everything as far as you could. And it got him paid. He was a comp pick out of high school, um, but he couldn't hit, right? It was huge, huge power, um, but he couldn't hit. And and he was a terrible defensive third baseman. Bo is not like his brother in a lot of ways. They both sort of came in with really weird, unorthodox swing mechanics. But the big separator was Bo Bo had the hand-eye. He could get the bat to the ball. And I don't think Dante Jr. had that hand-eye anyway. And his mechanics were also not conducive to him getting the bat to the ball unless it was pitched exactly where he wanted it. Bo is not not like that at all. We are going to go. There are a lot more players, of course, in this free agent class that we didn't get a chance to talk about today. But unless free agency flies by, I get the sense that we're going to have a chance to talk about many of those players over the course of the next few weeks. Yeah, we will definitely be back. If you would like to read Keith's top 50 free agent piece that is available on The Athletic, theathletic.com slash baseball show gets you in the door for $1 a month for the first six months. You can find Keith on Twitter at Keith Law. You can find me on Twitter at Derek Van Riper. The Athletic Baseball Show returns next week. Have a great weekend.